You're listening to 95.7 FM, KDRT-LP, Davis, California. And that music means it's time for the Davis Garden Show. This is Don Shore. And this is Lois Richter on the last show in January. 2024. And today's date is January 24th, 2024. This will broadcast on January 25th, 2024. And today's temperature, at least right now, is 54 degrees. Wow. But the high is going to be be 54 degrees apparently <laughs> to the weather service okay well that's today well, usually we record this in the morning and right now it's you know before 10 o'clock in the morning and usually the temperature when we record it is not the high of the day but today evidently it is we're not going to have a we're not going to have a wild temperature range over the next few days we did get a pretty good steady amount of rain from these uh, well showers i guess you could call them over the last couple of days about an inch over in the vacaville dixon area it looked like a little less than that in davis um we won't go over all the regions but vacaville is a good example 84 percent of our annual rainfall average on that side of the valley right now so we're catching up we had been a little further behind these storms are warm uh they're wet they're coming in steadily which is actually really kind of nice in terms of soil penetration. We've seen almost no flooding uh, soaking in where it falls. And so that's pretty cool, especially if you've planted trees recently. Very quickly, people keep asking if it's okay to plant right now, because of course it is bare root season at nurseries, hardware stores and such, where we all have those fruit trees out there waiting for you. And my honest answer is no, it's too muddy. Um, we want to wait until the soil breaks up a bit as you dig it out of the ground, not falls off the shovel in one big glob of mud. I did plant some trees when it was pretty wet a few days ago, and I used a pickaxe instead of a shovel because that broke the soil up more effectively. A shovel would have simply slicked the side of the planting hole. When you slick the side of the planting hole, you make a somewhat impenetrable layer for the fine roots to try and get through. And so they'll just keep circling in your planting hole rather than spreading outward. So my opinion is, no, it's too muddy to plant when you've had rain within the last 24 hours, 48 hours, and the, the, the soil was saturated to begin with. Better to wait a few days. In our area, in Sacramento Valley, where we have reasonably good, in some cases very good, agricultural soils, just a few days of draining out after a rain will get back to that workable condition. Yes, it'll be muddy. Yes, it'll be a mess, but you won't be doing damage to the soil structure. Thursday, 59 wait, degrees. Wait, wait, before you go further, Don, I'm sorry. I just have to jump in here because you're saying that it's it's too wet because it's rained recently. If I know I'm going to plant a tree and the mm -hmm. soil is wet, why don't I just go and put a tarp over the entire area for two days and then it'll be perfect? Had you why done that, that two days? Had you done that two days ago, you might be able to plant there. Now they, the problem is many people try that. Remember that uh, molecule to molecule connection of water. Okay. Yeah. So the 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 way that water spreads out as well as down, it will get with enough rainfall, 
just as saturated under a small tarp area as it will directly if the rain were falling on that spot. It's the capillary action of water. So you'll still be saturated if it really rains more than let's say three quarters of an inch to an inch. If you covered a big area, like a whole backyard with a tarp, I suppose you could have the water all drain off somewhere else, but that's not real practical. So okay. it better just wait. Just wait. And the other thing is when people, oh, this is one of our favorites, and this is quite a digression, but they dig the hole when they give us the plant order. Mm -hmm. um, don't do that because you're just going to have to re-break that hole up. I mean, you might as well just wait until the plant is there to dig a proper planting hole. I, I understand the, the enthusiasm and excitement. We certainly appreciate that, but it's better just wait till the tree is in hand, wait till the soil is workable, go out and dig the hole, go down and pick up your tree. And to that end at our garden center, and most I'm sure would probably accommodate this somehow, we'll put a sold tag on that tree and keep it in the shavings and keep it properly cared for at our nursery until you're ready for it. I really get nervous after years and years of selling bare root stock to stick it in a bag and send it home if you aren't ready to plant it right away. That really should get in the ground within 24 hours. And I've done it many times, waiting a few days because of weather and whatnot. You just get higher loss rates and it's frustrating, even if you've made a big effort to keep the roots cool and moist. So really better, just wait until we have several days without rain. Soil's nice and wet right now. That's great. It's soaking in. Once it's breaking up, rather than coming up as a big glop of mud, you can plant. Done plenty of planting when it's not quite perfect. That's all right. But digging a slick-sided planting hole is definitely not good for root penetration. We're going to be pretty warm for the next few days in these this series of uh, storms that's going to finally clear out, looks like, Saturday night. Slight chance of showers Friday with a high 58. Friday night, chance of showers, 49 degrees. 49 degrees, all right? So I, I actually have people talking about tomatoes. Oh, no. Now, not asking, do you have them? When will you have them? It's it's warming. Now can we think about them? Yes, you're allowed to think about tomatoes. <laughs> Saturday, <laughs> chance of showers. <laughs> think about them. And we can even talk about when to start those seeds. <laughs> Saturday, chance of showers, 61 degrees. Looks like that'll scoot out of here Saturday night, mostly cloudy. Again, 49 degrees. Sunday. Mostly sunny, 67 degrees. Oh, my nursery. It's oh, almost 70. My nursery degrees. owner's heart is going pitter-patter with that. <laughs> those numbers, 67 degrees and mostly sunny. Sunday night, partly cloudy, dropping down again, 49. We're not going to be below, well, 45 Thursday night, 49 Sunday night. Monday, partly sunny, 67 degrees. Monday night, mostly cloudy, low around 50. Tuesday, slight chance of showers, partly sunny with a high near 66. So uh, let's look at the extended forecast for you folks that want to get things planted. I've got a couple of customers who are bringing in plants and want to get them set out and get them put in the ground. We're talking about one gallon stuff. So it doesn't have to be perfect for that, but it'd be best if it's not literally soggy. So here's your extended discussion. Sunday is looking the best in terms of getting something done. Few lingering showers will remain possible early Sunday across the northern Sacramento Valley, expected to dissipate throughout the day. The majority of the extended period, Sunday through Wednesday, will be characterized by mostly quiet, quiet and warming weather as ridging prevails across interior Northern California through early next week. Near record high temperatures will be possible at a few sites within the Sacramento Valley Sunday through Tuesday, given the upper level ridging. High temperatures look to climb into the mid to upper 60s, a few lower 70s possible in the valley with mid 50s to low 60s at higher elevations through Tuesday. And then moving toward midweek, a pattern change is becoming evident. The ensembles are telling us that latest cluster analysis indicates a robust upper trough 
rain. We'll begin to push that persistent ridge eastward toward the central U.S. mid to late week. This will result in the potential for increasing rain chances for interior northern California during that time frame midweek next week. There continues to be uncertainty in the timing of this trough. There's a nearly 50-50 split within cluster analysis. In other words, the models disagree regarding the eventual breakdown of the ridge. The guidance is showing high variability regarding the track that it will take. So the exact details remain fuzzy at this time, but an overall increasing confidence that increasing precipitation impacts will be possible mid to late next week along the West Coast. So to answer the original question, when to plant? Looks like Sunday, looks like a good day for it. Monday, Tuesday, midweek, you're gonna start getting rainy again. So this is, Sunday will be the last Sunday in January. Mm-hmm. Would Will there be bare root uh, trees and things available? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, availability is very strong because the weekends have all been rainy. Most of us still have considerable inventory. The real concern we have every year, and this is true for everybody who does this, uh, it's warming up rapidly. Some things are going to break dormancy. And um, I'm looking at, we check as we're pulling them out to sell them to see whether any roots have initiated. Obviously, it hasn't happened yet, but it tends to start happening in early February. Whether any of the flower buds are pushing and beginning to show color, when that happens, we need to start potting them up. Many nurseries pot them as soon as they come in. Those of us that sell bare root, we have to kind of scramble as they start to push their flower buds out. They're still available. They're still mostly dormant. You can still buy them and get very good results. The question is whether you're buying it in a pot with a nice thing of potting soil or still bare root. I can tell you the first to push out, other than almonds, which most of us don't sell a lot of, plums are going to be the first ones to push out. Plums and pluots and then peaches and so forth. So we have a sequence in which we pot things up, but we generally do have to scramble a bit when we have unseasonably warm weather. Things will start to break dormancy, as in your landscape. I just took pictures of my first beautiful flowering quince blossoms on my shrub, Shinomaly japonica. Uh, I've got a couple other things out there that are that are pushing up and giving bloom i always think to myself oh this seems early which is why i always take a picture of it the first day that it's blooming and then i scroll back to last and go yep almost exactly the same so things that are blooming now would include calendulas sweet violets are blooming in my yard a little early for them it seems but no usually february so we're close to that Gazanias are blooming. Gazanias are a South African ground cover that blooms all through the winter here. Golden bush daisy. And it's interesting how many daisies do bloom through the winter here in the Sacramento Valley. Uriops, the golden bush daisy that we mention frequently, it's in full bloom right now. It looks glorious. Bright yellow blooming in the middle of January. And then there are, of course, pansies, violas, snapdragons, all those sorts of things that you can be planting. Stock are blooming now. Some of the earliest of the daffodils are getting very close. So there, we live in a place with some planning, you can have lots of blooms in January. What happens uh, that can be frustrating, it really happened last year when we had so much rain week after week after week. A lot of those flowers mold. You know, they, they open up and then they get that botrytis mold. Uh, the florist cyclamen gets it, the little miniature cyclamen don't. Pansies get it, violas don't. So over time, you begin to learn that there's some plants that are just fine with rain and they don't really care what the temperature is. Violas being a really good example. Sweet violet being a very good example. Um, but there's a lot of others where if you put them out and they've got big heavy petals and they're out in the rain and it's warmer than usual, the flowers will mold. This is one case where a mildly obsessive compulsion to pick off spent blossoms is very helpful. If you have a person in your household who likes to do little things with their hands, just have them go out and pinch off the gray moldy blossoms because that mold can penetrate further down into the plant and do harm to it. But if you 
pop it off of there before it progresses down the stem, you can protect the plant, which will then come into bloom again during sunny weather. I do want to mention one other thing that's blooming beautifully around the area. I want to throw that adjective on there because, or is that an adverb? I guess it'll take your pick. Um, Oxalis pez capra. What we all called sour grass when I was a kid. It's a yellow flat Bermuda buttercup. People are already on the Native Plant Society pages posting pictures of hillsides covered with this in the San Francisco Bay Area. They're posting the pictures because they're aghast at how far it has spread. It is a true invasive in the San Francisco Bay Area and many other parts of California. It's most definitely what we call a garden thug here in the Sacramento Valley, although it tends not to spread into non to spread into native areas because it doesn't have the irrigation that it needs. Having said that, I have little doubt that it could if it were encouraged to do so. It's really pretty. It grows from a bulb. It looks like shamrock. It has a, you know, it's an oxalis. It has a lovely candelabra of yellow flowers that stands up above the foliage. And persistent isn't the word for it. It multiplies from bulbs that form at the end of the roots, along the roots, and even on the top that then fall on the ground. So even if you pull it up, you're sure to leave some bulbs behind. Even if you pull it all up and rake it all away, there's still bulbs there that are going to come back. And I can tell you from considerable anecdotal experience, none of the popular herbicides kill it. So don't bother. <laughs> it's not a way to get rid of it if you wish to get rid of it. Don't plant it intentionally. This comes up in two ways in my garden center. What's that lovely yellow flower? I want some. Well, no, you don't. But if you really do, just go knock on a door where anybody has it in their yard with it and take a trowel with you and ask if you can take some. And they'll laugh and say yes, almost for sure. But be careful what you wish for. It's one of those plants you just won't be rid of. And if you're listening in the San Francisco Bay Area where you know it's just become a terribly invasive plant, you should be working to get rid of it not encourage it at the very least. The only thing that I've seen that works on it is to smother it with landscape fabric forever. I mean, that works because it can't grow through it. Our approach to it has been to recommend that you choose perennials that are predominantly present and blooming in the summer, since it's completely gone, the oxalis totally dormant phase of its life cycle in the summer, and plants that can get at least a foot or more tall to hold their own against it during the fall and winter if they happen to have foliage at that time. Two good examples that we've used, columbine, which does grow above the oxalis and blooms. It looks very pretty, blooming with the oxalis. And one yard where we put in dwarf plumbago, Ceratostigma plumbaginoides, completely dormant in the winter when the oxalis is doing its thing. And then the plumbago comes up just as the oxalis is finishing, grows through the summer, blooms all summer and fall, and goes dormant and completely dormant just as the oxalis is pushing up. And hey, the oxalis is gold and the plumbago is blue. So if you're an Aggie supporter here in Davis, you've just done your Aggie colors as well. And now you have two plants you can't get rid of. So <laughs> just look for plants that are tough and at least a foot tall would be my best recommendation if you happen to have a yard full of the Bermuda buttercup, as it's commonly called. And if you want to plant oxalis, but you don't want this problem, yeah. aren't there other forms of oxalis which are nice and would make good garden plants yeah i mean we have oxalis herta h-i-r-t-a with a pink flower there's some actually at the friends meeting house uh, where you you frequent and there's some right out front at our nursery a little pink flower it spreads slowly creeps along where it is and makes a bulb that stays behind but nowhere near to the degree of the bermuda buttercup and there's lots of ornamental oxalis that are not invasive at all and of course one of our worst lawn weeds is another species of oxalis there's a big it's a 
genus with lots and lots of species, many of which are great garden plants, but a couple of which are really invasive. So this particular one, there's no reason certainly to plant it. Uh, more commonly, the question is what to do if you already have it. And yes, by the way, it's okay to say that a non-native plant is pretty. I, this is this is something I have a frustration with talking to native plant folks. They can't look at a hillside covered with yellow flowers and go, "Ooh, that's pretty." Throw that in first, then go on your rant. That's fine, but uh, it's a tough one to get rid of. Let's put it that way. It's pretty, but there you go. Okay, that's the weather. That's uh, let's talk briefly about KDRT. Let's talk about hey, a music show. Why not? We always talk about public affairs, but we've got a long-standing programmer named Wayne Hagen, who is a founding member of the California Jug Band Association and a member of its board of directors. Wayne has been playing jug since 1979. He'll pull out his jug and play with anyone. He also tries to play the mandolin, is a big fan of Val Stevens and Yank Rachel, Rachel, I don't know. His passion for jug band music has turned him into a walking encyclopedia of the genre. Go ahead, ask him a question, we dare you. He says that getting a chance to share his love for jug band music on KDRT is a great joy. And I believe it's the only radio program dedicated to jug band music anywhere. Sounds so sweet. Live Wednesday, 6 to 7 p.m. Replays a couple times during the week for the rebroadcast time for Sounds So Sweet and all of the other great programming here at KDRT. Just click on the schedule guide. At kdrt.org. It's right there. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Bohart Museum of Entomology, the Beer for Butterfly contest is still open. What? This is amazing. January 24th, and it's still open. Why? Because it's been raining. So the person who finds the first of the year cabbage white butterfly in Yolo, Sacramento, or Solano County wins a beer or its equivalent. You don't have to be of legal age. You'll get a root beer or something from Art if, you, if you're underage. For more information about Art Shapiro's Beer for a Butterfly Contest and all the other events and programming at Bohart Museum of Entomology, go to Bohart, B o-h-a-r-t dot uc davis dot e-d-u now the bumblebee contest is closed because there's a winner for the fourth annual robin thorpe memorial first bumblebee of the year contest but you can still find that cabbage butterfly well let's get some questions here we have a question from joshua who lives in vacaville california Mm -hmm. Hello, Don and Lois. I listen to your show weekly and have learned so much from the both of you. I bought some asparagus from a Wedroad Barn Nursery a few years ago. It must have been late because Don wasn't sure the roots were still viable. <laughs> yeah. He assured me I could bring them back for a refund if it didn't grow. I had zero intentions of that, and the asparagus came up just fine. Good. I now have a full four-foot by eight-foot raised bed of asparagus. Um the rest, huh? Oh, the rest of the beds are too tall at three feet in height. And lesson learned when he built his raised beds. I've knocked all the other beds down to two feet. Mm-hmm. And this will happen with the asparagus bed once the original raised bed soil mix breaks down enough to do so. Yep. I use a lot of nitrogen on the other bed since the raised bed mix was delivered very high in organic material, ah. mostly wooden products. As the asparagus goes dormant, I would like to fertilize the bed. Last year, I cut back the foliage to soil level and mixed in chicken manure and topped with a layer of compost, followed by the asparagus foliage. 
The asparagus was healthy and I would like to do it similarly this year. This will be the fourth year of spears growing and I intend to harvest spears for consumption aggressively. Yes. The questions I have for you, please answer on the show. What type of soil amendments or fertilizer should be used for asparagus? Um, is chicken manure safe to mix into the soil for this type of edible vegetable? We usually cook our asparagus. Mm -hmm. When should the beds be amended? Should I stay away from high levels of nitrogen, trying to break down more organic material during the dormant stage? Oh, boy, lots of questions there, well, Joshua. Let's start with, is chicken manure okay to use? So the concern with chicken manure is that it potentially contains some foodborne illness organisms, E. coli, salmonella, things like that. It's a low risk. It's been piled up at the processing place and allowed to come to a high internal temperature. It's in most situations, it's composted chicken manure, but you can't absolutely guarantee that. And so there's a slight possibility that it would contaminate something that you eat fresh. Okay, the leafy greens right into chicken manure would concern us. Spinach kale if you don't happen to be cooking it lettuce things like that if you cook if you rinse and cook the risk is very 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 low however in general chicken manure is incorporated rather than being used right on the top and uh, incorporating it re just reduces the risk of contamination it's a great source of nitrogen nitrogen is probably all you really need for your asparagus and they don't need a lot of it they you know the old rule if you look at old gardening books i have a bunch from the 1940s and even older you would take your well-rotted stable manure we all have well-rotted stable manure right usually horse manure i guess <laughs> any stables handy then you go out and you spread a couple inches over the whole bed while the plants are fully dormant and uh, and then it sort of works its way in manure works fine steer manure is low risk but com combination products are probably safer arguably just because there's a higher likelihood they've been composted more fully you don't probably need phosphorus you don't probably need potassium the other two macronutrients unless a soil test has shown that you need those things we prefer that you keep at least phosphorus as low as possible because people tend to keep applying it keep applying it and every soil test i've looked at shows very high levels of phosphorus which is not desirable when you get to the very very high levels not all that harmful but not great and actually can suppress the growth of important soil organisms Pretty much what most people do for good results with asparagus is just top dress the bed with a good economical compost that contains some kind of nitrogen, typically chicken manure or some other source of nitrogen blended with the compost a couple inches on the surface across the whole bed. Uh, that works very well and doing it early in the season before the asparagus has pushed out is fine. If you want to, if you feel the need to fertilize, if the plants haven't grown that well and you appear to have a deficiency of nitrogen that's greater than what that will provide, you might want to get an organic fertilizer or the chicken manure and side dress with that, which means not right on top of the crowns, but a few inches off to one side or the other, spread it down in a long heaped up row cultivated in lightly very little risk of the spears pushing through that and it's right there going down to the root zone as the rains come along and the worms come up and pull it down for you so side dressing with chicken manure top dressing with compost those are probably the simplest ways to fertilize an asparagus bed and they're not high nitrogen users they're not high feeder type plants you are about to start straining it third or fourth year in, you can, yes, start harvesting your spears pretty aggressively over about a four to six week period. And you know you're gonna be weakening the roots by doing that. So at some point, as the spears are perhaps getting a little smaller or you've had enough asparagus for the year, you go, all right, now time to let it grow out. Now time to let it 
recharge those roots by growing the top as fully as possible. If you're using a conventional fertilizer, fast-acting synthetic fertilizer, that would be the time to fertilize because you're now trying to enhance growth. If you're using an organic one, such as manure or an organic garden fertilizer, that takes longer to break down, so you can put it on any time, and now is perfectly reasonable. Either way, you prefer to go with mainly nitrogen that you're after, not typically a high middle number. No matter what they tell you at the hardware store, no matter what they tell you at the other garden center, you mainly want to focus on nitrogen. This is where um, I do have problems with the fertilizer products that are put out even by the manufacturers we buy from. Uh, so you just look for one that's got a reasonable amount of nitrogen and try to keep that middle number lower if you can, unless because I know people are listening in a lot of other places, unless your soil test has shown you that you have a deficiency of phosphorus, which is unlikely anywhere in the Sacramento Valley, even as far to the west as Vacaville. So um, I don't want people to freak out and go to garden centers and say, I don't want any phosphorus. We just keep it low. Just, just don't listen when they tell you that the phosphorus is going to make it flower and fruit better. That's not true. And don't, don't worry about whether there's a ratio of the, the first, second, and third number on the label. That's probably not, you know, the, even or so-called balanced fertilizers are a myth. You don't need them to be a 10, 10, 10, 5, 10, 10, 5, 5, 5, 5, 10, 5. People come in asking me for those proportions. There's no evidentiary basis for those ratios. They're just marketing. Okay, we learned long ago that a 10 10 10 will sell better than a 10 1 3. Okay, it's just the way people are. You look at it, oh, that seems even. We even have a phrase for it. We call those a balanced fertilizer in the industry. Balanced only in the proportions of nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium. It has nothing to do with how plants use those macronutrients. Mainly focus on nitrogen. Organic sources release slowly, so you put them on earlier. Synthetic sources release more quickly, tend to be stronger, got to be more careful with them. In either case, if it doesn't rain, you need to water them in, and we mainly focus on nitrogen. But the asparagus will also benefit from a couple inches of whatever compost on the top that can be the most economical type that you can buy. Every garden center, every hardware store has a baled compost product. We all do. That's your most economical source of just organic material. The better manufacturers also add some kind of fertilizer to that, usually an organic fertilizer. So those work fine. But if you, if, you know, if you find a, a really cheap one, check the label. Every bag product that you buy, flip it over and read what's in it. And they're listed in the proportions, not percentages, but in the in the ratio. You know, how what's the largest amount and so on. And if it's got some kind of organic fertilizer, it will tell you. It will tell you what the source is. If you're curious about some of the oddities you're seeing in fertilizer products nowadays, like feather meal or, or a crab meal, send us a note. We're happy to talk about them. There's a lot of interesting organic sources of nitrogen, which is primarily what you're seeing added to these organic, particularly if they're labeled organic, bagged products. Hope that answered the question. I'll have to mention real briefly one that's come my way, for example. There's an alpaca farm. And they're part of an alpaca co-op in this area here in the valley. And they came around to show me an alpaca wool fertilizer product. Alpaca wool, like feather meal and like other byproducts of raising animals, whether ones you're eating or ones you're just raising for wool, there's always byproducts. And typically those things are very high in nitrogen. Feather meal is in a lot of the organic fertilizers we sell. Well, that's a livestock industry product. Alpaca wool they're not killing the alpacas for it it's just a byproduct of what they're doing it's what's left over from the process of getting desirable wool and they have someone has thought of this idea of 
formulating it into pellets to sell as a fertilizer. It's 10% nitrogen. And so they brought me some to try it and were you know, curious about whether it would sell. These are the kinds of things you're seeing in organic fertilizers is byproducts of animal, I guess this is, I wouldn't call it an industry in this case, because these are folks who are, now they're small operations, but they're getting together to see all this stuff. It's got nitrogen in it. It's a great source of organic nitrogen. There's some way we can get this from where it's just being thrown out or being dumped on the site of the people who have these animals to where gardeners might make use of it. So this is kind of a new one. This kind of thing has come my way at various times. The company comes down from Oregon every so often, leaves their glossy brochures at my desk of products that are based on crab meal and fish meal. Well, in Oregon, they apparently have a lot of those things, very high nitrogen. And so there's different sources. And if it's being sold as a soil amendment, or particularly if it's being sold as a fertilizer, it must have the analysis on it. This comes up with my customers who are vegans, for example, who want to make sure that they're not putting any animal byproducts of any kind into their garden. Say, well, that's really easy. You don't have to ask me, just flip the bag over and look at it. It will tell you exactly what is in there and whether or not there are enemy any animal byproducts or what the sources are. And then we can talk about how those relate to each other with respect to releasing the nitrogen for the plant, which is probably the only area of complexity in that whole monologue I just did. So here's a follow-up question from Daryl. Now, if you recall, uh, Daryl asked us about peach pruning. Mm -hmm. And uh, we had talked about that in a previous show. And here we go. Well, I'm having a go at it in advance of showing you my result. I'm counting on the trees being forgiving. He's talking about whether or not to send us a picture of his peach pruning. Because of your great input, I think I have it pretty well figured out. Now, do you have any simple 50-50 like rules for Asian pears and for persimmons and for figs? So let's talk about pruning Asian pears, persimmons, and figs. Yeah, the 50 by 50 rule was with the red fruiting wood of peaches and nectarines, you're thinning out half of it and you're heading back half of it. So that was easy. That one, that one was pretty straightforward. Um, apples and pears grow straight up. That's the key defining factor in how you train and prune them. They shoot for the sky. And anybody who's in about their third year with an apple or pear or cherry, for that matter, is aware of these extremely strongly vertical water sprouts is the term we use when we don't want them. But it's just the growth habit of those trees. If you plant an apple tree and do nothing, let's just say, you, and it's on a regular rootstock, like seedling rootstock is very common with apples. First year, it'll grow up five or six feet. can be that much. can be quite vigorous. Second or third year, more very strongly upright branches. Third year, they start to fruit, typically, on these little short spurs, the fruiting wood of apples and pears and cherries and apricots, as it happens, are spurs, short wood branches that stay for years and fruit in the same spot, in the case of apples and pears in particular, and well, cherries as well, for at least 10 or 20 years. Fruit in the exact same place year after year after year. A spur that's 10 years old may be four inches long. And it's a very, very tight packed, inter very short internode distances. They're very obvious once they start to form about in the third year, typically, is when you start to see them. So it doesn't matter in terms of fruit load like it does with peaches and nectarines where the tree will fall apart if you don't prune it. You don't have to prune an apple tree. What happens in 20 years if you've never pruned that apple tree we talked about? It'll grow straight up and then it'll start to fruit and the weight of the fruit will cause the branches to hang out more and more. And over a decade, it'll become a rather rounded crown. It will also be 15 to 20 feet tall or more and it will shower you 
with wormy apples. And so it becomes a management hassle when it's that tall. You can't pick the fruit, you can't spray for the worms, you can't even bag the fruit particularly. So you do need to control the size. And that's your main goal in pruning apples and pears. And that goes for Asian pears as well as European pears. Take the, when it's young, you take the center of the tree out to a well-positioned lateral branch. It will then throw a bunch of very upright shoots. And typically the first thing we would do when we'd walk up to an apple or pear tree in a customer's yard when we were there to prune is just take some time to prune those all out. Just take them out if they're strongly upright and can cut back to that basic framework. If you skip a year, it's okay. It's not okay to skip here with peaches or nectarines unless you're really careful about fruit thinning later. But with apples or pears, it's not as crucial that you get it pruned. Size control is your main goal. And given the fact that they fruit in the same place year after year, and you typically after five to seven years have enough spurs to give your family really as many apples or pears as you would probably want, um, primary goal at that point is size control and fruit load management, but it's not as crucial as it is with the peaches and nectarines. So it's more for structure. It's more for ability to reach the fruit to either protect it or spray it or whatever, pick it for that matter. Um, and you just want to make sure it's not going to get too tall to make those two aspects difficult, management of the fruit and harvesting of the fruit. They don't need as much pruning by any stretch as the others. What were the other two he asked about? Daryl has asked about pruning persimmon. How do ah. you do a persimmon tree? You don't have to prune them at all if you don't want to. Persimmon wood is very strong. I have a picture of my Fuyu persimmon about its 15th year in when we think it had six or 700 fruit on it. The branches were hanging from the weight of the fruit. None of them broke. Yes, it could happen, but it's much less common. It's in the ebony family. It's a very hard wood, very structurally sound. And so really the question is, how many persimmons do you want? How big a tree can you tolerate? It's strictly aesthetics and preference on, on persimmons. An unpruned Fuyu persimmon, I have one, 25 to 30 feet tall, 20 feet across, drops fruit at every stage of fruit development. Uh, even, you know, as, as with other fruit, there's a lot of them that fall right after pollination, but then it continues with those. So there's going to be litter underneath a persimmon tree. That's really kind of the only negative, honestly, on persimmons. They're otherwise, they're absolutely beautiful trees in every respect, except the fruit litter, whether we're talking ripe fruit or pre-ripe fruit, can be a factor. So the main pruning with persimmons is really more a matter of training when they're young. People do typically, unlike me, do typically take the center of the tree out to encourage more spread to keep the tree so that you can pick the fruit from a small ladder or with a small fruit picker, not having to climb way up into the tree and not wanting it to get as so huge that you have fruit falling all over the ground. It's just, you don't have to prune them at all. It's mainly done for size control. And that's really it. And I, in my opinion, should also be done for aesthetics because they're one of the most beautiful fruit trees you can grow. And if you don't prune them and you only harvest what you can reach from the yep. ground, you will be a wonderful banquet for feasting birds. Yeah. You're going to have robins up there. You're going to have the uh, cedar wax wings. You'll have lots of flocks coming in to eat that fruit. So that's, if that's you can the... tolerate a little mess, it's yeah. a lot of fun to watch. Well, and as pointed out by a more cynical customer, you should say wildlife, not birds, because the squirrels and the rats will also come in for the fruit, which can be a concern for some people. So if, if that's the case, just keep it small enough that you can pick all the fruit. Um, it, what we did with our hachia persimmon, because that's the one that has to be squishy soft before you can eat it. Many years ago, when we were first planning it, we went ahead and headed that one back 
the way you frequently will see done at nurseries at the time of planting. And we let it branch low so that we could reach most of the fruit. And I finally stopped pruning it because honestly, nobody was using that fruit. So I just thought, all right, get as big as you want. So it's about 15 by 15. And the fruit is reachable from an eight foot ladder, which is fine. Uh, I don't want you all up on ladders, okay? <laughs> I don't want you up picking fruit in the mud on ladders, especially if you're over, let's say, 55. So I would prefer that you be able to pick things from the ground. Now, in the case of Hachia, that was a fruit that couldn't have been designed better for a fruit picker. You can get one of those long extension fruit picker things. It's just got a basket at the end. It even has a little foam thing that goes in the basket so the fruit will fall onto soft foam rather than the hard basket. And you can reach up there and tug on a fuyu and it falls down into the basket. And you can do two or three of them and hand them to the person that's helping you and so forth. Hashia, that's a little gross because they're soft. So um, you want them short enough that you can carefully get up and snip them off and take them in and use them for your drying or your persimmon pudding or whatever it is. So they're a bit more of a hassle. I do recommend if you choose an astringent type of persimmon, such as hachia, that you prune it and tra train it especially and prune it in such a way that the fruit is accessible from down below. Case of fuyu, the one that you can eat while it's still firm, as Lois says, birds will love them if you don't get them. Easily three quarters of our tree is harvested by waxwings and other birds. And it's fun to watch. It's messy, but it's fun to watch. And it is something that hangs on the tree all the way through December into January even. So they're finding food sources at a time of year when, you know, maybe there aren't as many others out there. So for birders, Fuyu persimmon, allowed to grow naturally, is a wonderful tree. But as part of your orchard, and this is what more commonly happens, let's say you have peach, plum, nectarine, apple, pear, persimmon. You let that persimmon grow full size, it is going to shade the other trees, perhaps. So pruning it just to keep it manageable is really your only goal in that particular one. What was the other one that he mentioned? How do we prune fig trees? Ah, however you want. <laughs> that really is the answer. I think I, I think I have told this story before. I moved into a rental house. There was, I think, a volunteer fig that had grown up. And uh, so what I ended up doing with it is I cut down the, the, the main stem. And of course, it, the side shoots grew up just fine. And so I, I got a little creative. You know, I'm in the artistic type. And so I ended up pruning out the center mm -hmm. and leaving this cup of, of branches with foliage and everything. And I had myself a little... Um, secluded place. I put a chair out there so I could sit inside the fig tree in the summer. And it was wonderful. Now, you mentioned that that was probably a volunteer, which is very common in this area. And seedling figs almost never have good fruit. Sometimes they do, but it's rare. So if people very commonly come in, it can be a little hard to tell seedling figs from seedling mulberries. And we have both of those in this area. They're closely related. But the seedling figs will grow and make a lovely tropical plant. And a very common situation is that they start to initiate fruit, which then doesn't develop properly. That's It's a seedling. It's not going to have good fruit. If you want good fruit, go buy a fig tree or just just get a branch from someone who has one and stick it in a pot because they will root that easily. Figs are extremely easy to root. Um, there's a lot. We live in a place where figs are among the easiest fruit trees to grow. It always amazes people in the Sacramento Valley to read the lengths that people will go to to grow figs in the mid-Atlantic states and Canada and New England and places where they bury them, wrap them, bring them in. I mean, do all these things to get them through the winter. Well, they're perfectly cold hardy here. That's the first thing to know. And they are 
at least the most common garden forms uh, that were available for a long time were big trees. I mean, we're talking things that will get 30 to 40 feet if they're allowed to. Uh, brown turkey or, or black mission, excuse me, one of the most common historic figs in California from the mission era is smaller. It only gets about 20 feet. I have one in my backyard and it's 20 by 20 if I don't prune it. So the only pruning I do on figs is for size control and to reduce the massive amount of fruit that's going to fall on the ground. We're talking about old-fashioned regular figs, Black Mission, Brown Turkey, White Cadota, White Genoa, uh, all of those types. Most home gardeners are not growing the commercial type figs. We're growing selected forms that set fruit without cross-pollination. You don't have to worry about that. They do commercially, but you don't have to, and which get large if you allow them to. Big, beautiful trees, tropical-looking leaves, beautiful white bark, and the contrast of the leaves against the bark is very pretty but big and that's a lot a lot a lot of fruit to have falling on the ground and attracting not just birds in the case of figs there are for those of you who want figs and are limited for space slower growing or denser types such as violetta de bordeaux or truly dwarf figs that have come on the market like little miss figgy oh or, look i don't name them okay or fignominal that's another new one um, and blackjack has been around for a long time too, which appears to be just a naturally dwarf form of black mission. So these are nurseries are going to be pushing these because you can grow them in pots, you can put them in the ground, grow them like a shrub, and get plenty of figs that you'll be perfectly happy with. Violetta de Bordeaux is an interesting one. We've been stocking it quite routinely since we have a couple growers that have now been producing it regularly. It's been around for more than 300 years. It's got dozens of common names. I mean, it's it's a very popular variety. Stays short or stays tight. Short internode distances. Yes, it would become a tree eventually, but every five years you top it down, that would easily keep it more like a bush. And it initiates fruit starting in midsummer or earlier. We're not even talking about the spring or breba crop, which we also get here. And it keeps initiating fruit all the way into October. I've had someone brought, walk in with a fig in December and say, is this a little weird? Is it not for that variety? It does that no matter what. And you can do it in a container. Even if you're listening in a place where figs are considered too tender to grow, it's probably a good choice for you because it'll start initiating fruit as soon as you get it outside in the summer, practically, and right on until your weather is too cold for it. Violetta de Bordeaux. But there are dwarf figs available. And you can grow them in containers, but bear in mind that figs have big root systems no matter what. The fig is a arid region riparian tree. So that means it riparian is by the river right and in almost every arid region there are rivers even in oh. even in very dry hot desert areas there are rivers and the riparian trees that are from those regions tend to have i'll make this sweeping generalization here aggressive outward roots that will tap into moisture sources wherever uh, so there are figs on my farm that have not been irrigated by me for over 30 years, uh, actually closer to 40 years. They've not been irrigated by the nearby orchard directly, but the nearest irrigation sprinkler on the nearby orchard is 40 feet away. I wouldn't be surprised at all if the roots of these 80-year-old fig trees have tapped right into that. The roots go out, and it's not a plant that I would put right on your foundation. Let's put it that way. Figs are uh, there's some pretty well-known members of the genus that swallow up houses and so forth. So bear in mind that figs tend to have fairly aggressive roots. So, well, you can grow them in a container. 
Uh, within, oh, let's say, the third year, they'll be very thoroughly root-bound. As long as you're watering daily, fine, but your life will be a lot easier putting it in the ground. But there are very dwarf figs that are manageable. The main, getting back to the, the original question, the main purpose of pruning figs is size control. It doesn't really increase the size of the fruit when you prune it. That's a goal for pruning peaches and others to improve fruit size and quality. That doesn't seem to make much of a difference. It's just that a fig, full size, at its full fruiting potential, you're looking at three to 5,000 figs on the ground attracting something. And I don't know, I don't care how much you like figs, there are going to be figs on the ground. <laughs> However, a small, well-managed fig, kept like a bush, pruned hard, if necessary, that would be something that would give you a reasonable number and still not overwhelm the other trees nearby. So figs, like persimmons, mainly pruned for size control more than anything. So I have in front of me a question with an answer in, in outline form. And I, I want to do this rather quickly. So I'm going to read the question, read the three big topics, and then in each one, have you explain. So mm -hmm. the question is, why didn't my tree produce fruit? Yeah. And the three possible variations of that is it flowered, but there was no fruit, yeah. or it had very fruit, very few flowers or fruit, or the fruit set, but then disappeared. That's an easy so one. So let's start with the first one. <laughs> yeah. oh, okay. Let, okay, we'll start with the third one. The fruit sets and then it disappears. What happened? Squirrels or tree rats. Something yeah, ate. Something, something ate them or knocked them yeah. off or whatever. Yeah, that one. that's an increasing problem in Davis because tree squirrels are now very well established in the town. Um, that's a exclusion and barriers are your best answer on that one. That's a whole separate topic. But the first two, flowers but no fruit. Yeah, so so we're not going to go into the solutions. We're just right. going to go into the the thing. We've covered some of these solutions before, and I'm sure we'll cover more in other shows. Yeah, we're getting so, a lot of this, wow. this a lot of this question this year because last year, uh, very many many fruit varieties gave nothing, uh, and you know people thought it was a disease problem, or they need to spray with something, or they need a special fertilizer. No, nope, that wasn't it. Um, insufficient chilling hours or units. That would just be you bought the wrong variety. Uh, needs a pollinizer. If it flowers and doesn't fruit, well, then you need to have something that cross-pollinizes it. Needs a pollinator, ties into number four, inclement weather, rain. 13 atmospheric rivers in uh, last, last year. It rained right through the bloom period of most of these varieties. And so they needed a pollinator, but they were staying in their hives because they don't fly when it's raining. So weather was the biggest factor in 2023. Late frost, some of you are listening in places where that could be an issue. You plant one, we warm up, the, the trees flower, we get very cold, like 28 degrees, and damages the blossoms. I have not seen that here, but I suppose it could happen. And then the last one, which does tie into the questions that people are sometimes asking, blossoms killed by disease. In the case of apricots or plums, it could have been brown rot disease, in which case there's a spray that you use for that. So that's flowers, but no fruit. So the next one is there are there are a few flowers, there are a few fruit, but not not much. Yeah, alternate bearing is one of the most common causes of that. Uh, satsuma mandarins are famous for it. My satsumas last year, each tree, these are big mature trees, four to six hundred fruit at least, each tree. This year, two of them have zero 
<laughs> that's about as alternate bearing as you can get. It's never been this bad. And it's hard to get out of the alternate bearing pattern, but that can be a factor. Drought and the timing of drought can be an issue. Uh, some trees initiate their flower buds in the late summer. Almonds, for example. Others initiate them a little later. Walnuts, for example. If they're drought stressed during the period of flower bud initiation, there will be fewer flower buds initiated. Uh, no fruiting wood yet. Uh, that's a, you know, they're just too young to fruit. In the case of spur fruiting types, it takes uh, two to three years for them to start fruiting. Pruned too hard, that can happen when you prune them very severely. Like if you cut off all the red wood of your peaches and nectarines, you won't have any fruit because you cut off all the fruiting wood. And twice in my career, I've gone out to look at trees and found that someone had methodically removed all of the fruiting spurs from their cherry tree or the other one was something similar. They had carefully pruned off all the little short spurs because they were on the interior of the plant, so they had removed all of the fruiting wood. Too much nitrogen. Yeah, if you're constantly feeding with synthetic forms of nitrogen and getting really vigorous growth, that can be internally at the expense of, of flowering and fruiting wood. Too much shade. That's a common one, unfortunately. If you plant your trees and your rest of your landscape matures, shades them out, they gradually flower and fruit less and less. And some places that people are listening, you might have a nutrient deficiency, but that's very uncommon here. And I can't off the top of my head think of a specific nutrient that would cause lack of flowers and fruit more commonly it's just the plant not growing really well at all you know a plant that's barely growing six inches or less than a foot a year is also not going to flower or fruit real well so you might want to focus on nitrogen and try to get the plant growing better so those are the many possible reasons that your tree didn't flower or fruit but only one of them involves a spray that was the blossoms killed by disease that's usually just apricots or plums there are dormant sprays that are used for that purpose Well, Don gets this question a lot in various forms. Um, if you could only plant X number of whatever it is, what would yeah. you choose? Well, in this one, uh, he wrote it up. And it, the question is, if you could only plant five fruit trees, what five would you choose? That's a tough one. Boy. Yeah. And, and because we're trying to keep this short, I'm not going to do the whole thing. Is this document on your website, Don? Uh, it probably is. This goes back to one of my, my old friend, Fred Hoffman, our longtime radio listeners know Fred as the host of the KFBK Garden Show, and he has a podcast now, and I've been on his at various times. Fred used to live out in the country and moved into town. His wife got tired of living out in the country, so they moved into a normal residential property. And Fred? Fred. Uh, Fred, the farmer, the farmer, the Fred. Property? Yeah, oh he God. went, he went from, he was in my situation before. Oh, that's an interesting variety. I think I'll plant it and see how I like it to, yeah. I have room for five trees. What are the five <laughs> trees I'm going to plant? And I immediately started cheating. You know, it's like, well, you could do two in one hole. You could give one to your neighbor, make sure they have one on the other side of the fence and so on. How about multi-graft? How about doing a fruit hedge and so <laughs> forth? Well, I can assure you, this was written a few years ago. He's probably done all of those things. But this, I get this question about roses. If you could only plant five roses, what would they be? Well, that's a whole nother combination. Uh, but I did think about it. What are the ones that we really use? What are the ones where if you just had one? Number one that I put on this list was the Washington Naval Orange. And I know that sounds like kind of a funny one after all the things we've been talking about, but I've never lived here without a Washington Naval Orange. Uh, the first house we lived in and the farm we live on in each case had an established one. I can't even imagine a winter without being able to go out and pick 
oranges um, and I take them into work and everybody loves them. Yes, of course, the Satsuma mandarins are wonderful. Everybody raves it, but they wait for that season. But that's like six weeks. I mean, we're in mid late January and the fruit's beginning to have problems because of the moisture, not the navel oranges. They're fine. They've got a nice tough skin, nice waxy coating. They'll hang on there all the way through February and still be very good quality. So number one to me would be a Washington navel. It's low input. It's easy. I don't fertilize it at all. I deep water it every three to four weeks. That's it. And I do prune it for size control. That's about it. And that's, I consider it just one of the easiest, but yes, Satsuma mandarins would definitely be up there. But then we get to the world of stone fruits. And uh, mm -hmm. I'm talking about peaches, plums, nectarines, all that crowd. There would be one peach at least. I mean, if you live here and you have room for a peach tree, you really should plant one. Because if you've never picked a fully ripe peach off the tree in your backyard and eaten it right there, you haven't lived. So, but you want to get the richest flavored peach. And I'd keep coming back to, and by the way, nectarine is just essentially a variant of peach. It's a smooth, it has no fuzz on the skin and a different flavor profile for sure, but it's a closely related species. So I would probably do two peach and or nectarine. <laughs> That would stretch You're over. You're getting me on your five. No, no, not yet. Two. I would do probably, let's say, a flavor top nectarine and no Henry peach. That would give you a really rich flavored nectarine in July, a really rich flavored peach in August. All right. So there you go. And they don't need cross pollination. You don't have to worry okay. about that. So there's a, there's three. We're up to three. Um, a new plum that I planted just a few years ago, it's an old variety that came back in, has people have just been raving about it when I bring them into the nursery. It's the Inca plum it's golden yellow you do see this one in the grocery stores occasionally firm textured rich flavor picks over two to three weeks self-fruitful no i don't have it this year sorry some nurseries might it's a little hard to get but of all the plums that are out there this one has just become all of our favorites at the at our nursery so if you can find it it's a very good one but there are other plums that are very good as well now the next one is a little tricky dapple dandy pluot of all the pluots, in my opinion, it's one of the first that was introduced many years ago, has the very best flavor. It's not an attractive fruit. It's a sort of a mottled looking thing. So you're not going to ever find it in the grocery store. You can pick it over at least a couple weeks, actually. I've been able to pick it over about three weeks. But that Dapple Dandy needs a pollinizer. So it needs a Santa Rosa plum somewhere nearby or another pluot such as Flavor Supreme. That's a great combination. If you like pluots, Flavor Supreme and Dapple Dandy. Oops, I'm up to five trees now. But the Santa Rosa You're plum. Uh, what's that? Oh, I'm up to six. Okay. Well, <laughs> all right. So you take that that flavor supreme which ripens in june and pollinizes your dapple dandy you give that one to your neighbor <laughs> and put it on the other side of the fence make sure it's close enough that it reaches over so you can pick some of the fruit yes and you could take those two plum trees and put them in the same hole and it would count as one tree yeah, I did that. I did that. And uh, I have to tell you, it's a lot of work to prune it so that one doesn't crowd out the other one. The three in one whole thing works. I've done it. It just means you have to really be on the pruning. But that's the way of cheating because then you get two or three in one hole and they can count like one tree. Pretending we're not going to do that. Dapple Dandy is the one worth looking for. Flavor Supreme will pollinize it, as will Santa Rosa Plum. So if you skip the Inca Plum and do a Santa Rosa, one of the things I do like about Santa Rosa Plum, I mean, it's our California basic plum everybody knows it whether they know it or not it ripens in my property in june and that's one of the first stone fruits to come in along with the blenheim apricot 
And then these peaches and things are July and August. So that would stretch your season. So I don't think I answered the question fairly, but I think I gave some of the best if I were really stuck with only having five fruit. By the way, an alternative to Henry, I think Rio Oso Gem is still one of the best late ripening peaches out there. Both of them ripen in August, both very, very good. So if you don't happen to find O'Henry at your local nursery, Rio Oso Gem is also outstanding. I'm surprised you didn't put that Red Baron in there. I was expecting that to be one of your five. Uh, for fruit, I mean, it's very good, but it softens. And I want people to oh. know this when they buy it. It's a, it's a beautiful tree, and it is one of my favorite fruit trees, especially for a landscape potential. I wrote an article that you can find in the Sunday Davis Enterprise about fruit trees for ornamental use. And I definitely, of course, mentioned Red Baron Peach. And it has very rich flavor, but it softens immediately. So it's the kind where you eat it right there under the tree, or you learn to pick it about two days before that fruit is ripe, if you're going to try and take it give it to anybody otherwise it bruises very badly so in terms of being a multi-purpose peach it's not as versatile as loring or uh, flavor top nectarine or o henry or rio oso gem which all have the advantage of firmer textured fruit someone just asked me that question the other day about the fruit the differences of the fruit and i you know i i do want you to understand that there's some of them that are much more multi-purpose if you like to freeze peaches for later use, if you like to make them into pies, things like that, uh, if you want anything like that, then you should get a firmer textured variety. Uh, uh, Red Baron is a wonderful fruit, but it's too soft to freeze, really. And it's too soft to make into pies. It'll just kind of turn to mush. So the others are more multi-purpose in that regard. As far as landscape value, uh, the ones I mentioned in the article, aside from Red Baron, the Weeping Santa Rosa Plum, which is a beautiful tree, Weeping fruiting mulberry. If you like mulberries, there's a beautiful, fascinating weeping form of that available. And of course, I mentioned persimmons and pomegranates, both of which are very ornamental as well as fruit producing. I know very few people who put persimmons and pomegranates at the top of their fruit tree list of the fruit they absolutely love and have to have, but they're really easy to grow. And they're also very attractive plants in the landscape. You've been listening to the Davis Garden Show with Don Shore. And Lois Schrichter here at KDRT LP 95.7 in Davis, California.